Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. Welcome everyone, I'm Tim. I'm Tay. Oh boy, wow. What a what a movie today. <laughs> I my senses are overblown. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot. Like I'm I'm really aware of my teeth. Uh, <laughs> you know, like I'm 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 kind of fiending for, for some fried dumplings. Uh uh, because I, you know, I haven't really overdone it with them yet. Um, we're talking about Old Boy today. <laughs> yeah, Old Boy is, uh, I don't know, just a movie that I continuously go back to, and I'm always blown away by it. I, it just never loses its shock value, or its, I don't know what, I don't know. It kind of wets my whistle in every way, for, mm. in terms of uh, the cinematic <laughs> apparatus. It, it does yeah. everything <laughs> that I want a movie to do. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a, it, like, it's a great sort of idea like this is honestly one of the ones i know it would be shocking but if someone you were to come across someone who had never seen a movie before this i feel like would be like in a in the first 10 movies where it's like you want to see what movies can do you want to see how many different shots there are how they can move how they can stay still what kind of stories they can tell this is one of those ones where it feels like this doesn't work i I know it's based on a manga but it doesn't work as a book or as a play there are things that it does that you can only do in cinema. Truly, truly using the cinematic form to its fullest potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've talked about this with a couple filmmakers before, uh, kind of maybe with Wes Anderson or someone like uh, like the more formalist directors. What Park Chan-wook does so well is, like you just said, like you alluded to, uses every shot that you can fit into a movie. Every type of angle is in this film uh, using... Uh, I don't know. Just there's so many editing techniques. The list goes on. Yeah, it's a great thing to really dig into, and we will. But to start, we just want to make sure anyone who hasn't watched it yet, and you never know, this might be more likely that if someone saw that we were doing a Korean language film, that maybe they just want to listen to the episode first and see what they would see in the movie. Of course, as always, we think you should stop right now and go check out Old Boy, and then come back and listen. But for anyone who doesn't know, this is a uh, movie from 2003. Uh, it's about a man who, when freed after being in prison for 15 years, uh, the main character, Odai Su, seeks an explanation and revenge for his imprisonment. It was directed, as Tay said, by Park Chen-wook. It was released November 23, 2003, and stars Choi Min-sik, Kong Hai-young, and Yuji Tay. Uh, it's only available right now on physical media. Wow. Um, so okay. Just a hint to everyone out there who thinks maybe you don't need Blu-rays. Critical movies, legacy movies, movies like this that will continue to make top 100 lists for the the remainder of the history of cinema as we know it. Uh, right now, it cannot be streamed. It cannot be rented. Uh, I'm sure it can be pirated. But if you had a Blu-ray player and a Blu-ray of it, then uh, then you could watch it right now. So that's why, as always, we recommend keeping some physical media of your favorite movies and... and uh, we're actually just as as we're as we're recording this, we're within an hour of the end of our second Blu-ray giveaway. So it's too late if you're listening right now, but keep an eye out for episode thirty. Right? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit down the road. Mm-hmm. So one thing I want to circle back on Tay that you said was that this is this is a highly cinematic movie. It's it's unique in how it uses um, the full canvas of what cinema offers and that actually lines up with when in 2003 at the Cannes Film Festival Quentin Tarantino was the president of the grand jury right and he really pushed for this movie yeah (laughs) 
he really pushed for this movie to be the Palme d'Or selection, and it didn't get that, um, but it did get the Grand Prix selection or the prize. And uh, so is that like just Tarantino picking this movie to win? I I believe it's a selection <laughs> instead of like a group uh, choice, like the Palme d'Or among the jury. And the jury, if, if for anyone who doesn't know, it's made up of producers, actors, directors. It's always kind of an odd thing to sort of see who are they going to pick this year. You never know. Some of them are people like Tarantino or some of them are are people you may not have heard of but that are longtime industry insiders. But one of the things that the president has to do is sort of set the stage for the criteria, right? It's not this is the way we pick a film every time. It always has to do with the zeitgeist, with what's going on, with a lot of context things, and his... I guess his platform was based on the idea of cinema first. And I think this movie is a great example of of something that's made cinema first. Honestly, that's probably one of the best ways you can phrase what this movie brings to the table. Mm -hmm. It is constantly aware of its being a movie. And it's not to say that the characters are aware or that it's an overly reflexive film, but just the ability to be like, now wouldn't it be cool if we had a train come through this shot and break the frame? Uh, and then they just do that. Like a subway comes mm. through the shot yeah. and like cuts the frame in half and then you're into a new world. Little moments like this. And I'm going to get into the whole sensory overload of this movie mm-hmm. afterwards, but there is so many uh, cinematic choices that are perfectly executed to make you feel everything that this movie wants to make you feel. Yeah, I think there is something where they're trying to align your human experience with these very heightened ones of um, Odaisu and uh, the the antagonist in this Lee Wu Jin. Because really, this is a this is a a double revenge story. It's two revenge plots playing out in situ, but you only see it from one perspective. And the villain's reve- revenge plot is to make the hero into him to essentially get him to commit the same sin. Yeah, maybe I mean, I it's do... maybe at this point we should say that we are going to spoil Old Boy. Yeah. So if you haven't seen Old Boy, mm-hmm. we are going to spoil it, and it is a pretty, uh, it's a big twist. So we don't yeah, want you to be caught ending, off guard. So definitely, definitely go check it out first, or or understand that you will find out. But yeah, you have these dovetailing revenge stories that I think are a lot about one person trying to put someone in the same position. Uh, sort of as a as a response to their the original judgment that was levied on them, and a lot of this movie, like it, as as you said, it's it's about putting the audience in the position of the people that are being hurt or destroyed or dismantled. Um, in this movie, there's a lot of leveling out of the experience, and I think it's really powerful for that. We should say before we move on that, it, yeah, directed by Park Chan Wook, but the cinematography was by Chung Hoo Chung, and film editing by Jong or sorry, Jai Bom Kim and song bomb kim um and they are like the editing is uh, like a master class like I, I cannot believe how well this movie moves shot to shot and how you just kind of get the feeling like you're watching a group of people directors cinematographers editors who are all on the same page that they don't have to play by any rules if they want to, if they think this shot suits the next second of this plot or the gets you in the head of this character a little better they'll do that it doesn't matter what the genre expectations are. It doesn't matter what normal shot lengths are or, or how you cut things together. And it, it just works so well. I think even coming down to conventional blocking, like when you're setting up a scene, blocking a scene, some of this is just so revolutionary. And it's, I think, a lot in large part due to what you just said, 
they kind of threw aside the rule book and we're not mm-hmm. trying to make some Hollywood stylized film. This is a movie right from like the guts and the trenches of Korean cinema and it really pushed forward this whole new movement of filmmakers uh, and a lot of whom like we are seeing finally be recognized mm-hmm. in America now. Uh, this yeah. is just the initiation point though for these kinds of films. Uh, yeah. I, I know South Korean cinema kind of had its renaissance in the early 90s and kind of started coming back with more uh, international types of films that were more seen or that were seen more widely but I think mm-hmm. old boy is where this movement really takes off yeah and and I mean it's kind of timely a little bit because it's just now we're seeing another resurgence parasite got that Oscar a couple years back and now Netflix you know with squid game they're investing heavily in South Korean properties and they're they're becoming more accessible like parasite was really sort of a barrier breaker where the Western world recognized that yeah we can read subtitles it's okay and if anyone listening to this is still worried about that, if, you, if you've never gotten into reading subtitles, it is certainly an adjustment, but, like, it opens you up to a vast majority of other movies, right? Like, you're, if you're sticking to English language, you're, you're in, the, you're in the, the kiddie pool, right? Uh, yeah, as much as I don't want to sound demeaning, like, you are <laughs> limiting yourself from a true treasure trove of cinema. Just in terms of amount, not quality, not making any quality judgments, but just the amount of film that isn't presented in English language you're just really limiting yourself if you're if you're if you refuse to read subtitles yeah like this week i actually i watched you know i'm going off topic but i watched a bollywood <laughs> film which was yeah. in, in hindu yeah and and I, I watched old boy like twice so yeah you know most of my movies that i watched this week were not in english yeah. and uh, all for the better it, yeah. it really I mean, opens I'm, I'm, opens the doors yeah, I mean, I'm one of those people, and I know that there are more of us now who, even when I'm watching something in English language, I put the captioning on, because it's just, I don't know, I like to read while I watch now, or it's a crutch, but, um, or for maybe me, it was Nolan movies with the, the low mix dialogue. <laughs> for, for me, it's a matter of what the style of film is, so if it's like a thriller, mm-hmm. or if it's a comedy, I always worry about putting the subtitles on uh, for English, because I don't want mm-hmm. the subtitles to come too early and spoil yeah. something that I'm mm-hmm. like kind of on the edge of my seat to see or in terms the of comedy and then I'm missing the comedy beat mm-hmm. so other than that though I do like in especially in confusing or more confusing movies where there's multiple audio tracks happening simultaneously it is kind of fun to have subtitles mm-hmm. on uh, with that tangent out of the way though <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we should yeah I think this is a good one to dig into though as as one of our one of our first more foreign films uh to talk about because old boy is probably the best known south korean movie right say yeah it's easily on the list you can make arguments about some other ones obviously parasite probably took that crown recently but for a decade or two old boy if you were going to break in if you googled i want to get into asian cinema you know they they'd give you a bunch from japan a couple from china they probably tell you crouching tiger hidden dragon which can be argued whether or not that counts as a western production and uh, and they tell you to, to to see Old Boy, and I do think it's it's incredibly accessible, um, and it it moves fast. It's not always dialogue heavy, um, and and it has it's it's become incredibly influential. That um, the hallway fight scene has been spoofed off the top of my head. I'd say at least three times. There was it was in Netflix Daredevil. Um, yeah, 
There's another one I was thinking of just the other day, but people love that scene and they love to do it and normally not do it as well because they don't want to spend 17 days rehearsing. Well, yeah, that uh, I we're intentionally not talking about that scene today because I think if you haven't seen the infamous old boy hallway fight scene, just go YouTube it right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is worth your time. <laughs> it's a, yeah. it's a few minute long single take fight scene. That, like Tim said, has changed the landscape of how to do these kinds of fight choreography scenes mm-hmm. uh, across all industries, especially Hollywood, which loves to steal from international cinema. Mm-hmm. Or just remake it entirely. And that's all right. we're going to say about about one of <laughs> one of, a movie that's related to this movie in name and content, but uh, really didn't work. Yep. Um, you can check the show notes if you're really interested in learning more. <laughs> I'm not going to even mention it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so another thing I did want to talk about, because we can, we will talk about sort of more how this movie is filmed and how it moves and how it has a sort of frenetic momentum from shot to shot and scene to scene in the sequence that we're going to talk about below. Or, uh, sorry, that we're going to talk about later in the episode. Before that, I do want to talk about the way that it treats the revenge movie structure. Because it's incredibly unique in that I'd say 99% of revenge stories they work because you know why the person needs to get revenge. You know that John Wick has to avenge his dog. You know why um, Beatrix uh, Kiddo is killing people in Kill Bill. Lady Vengeance, point blank, payback. It's always someone did them wrong. Someone killed something important to them. And they have to go back. This one, the thrust of the movie is why was Odaisu imprisoned? And that's really what hangs over him. And as you go on, I, I, you know, I try to feel back to how I took in this movie the first time. It's so hard to do after you've seen it this many times. But I do feel like you get the sensation over the course of it as Lee Woojin's playing with him that, like, at a certain point, he shouldn't want to know why anymore. That he's he's playing into Lee Woojin's scheme, and yeah. that ultimately is is how Lee Woojin levies his revenge against Odaisu is with the knowledge of what he's done. I mean, you can say that Odaisu probably should have realized he didn't, he shouldn't want to know the truth at the same time being in prison for 15 years and not knowing why or who is like, or who did it. I mean, is, has got to be, I don't know. It's incomparable how that would feel. No one can really truly relate to that feeling. So I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't blame him at all. And I mean, the, the, the need, the urge to know what even you are told you don't want to know is an incredibly human thing. We've talked about it in Sicario. We talked about it in uh, Edge of Tomorrow, the weight of knowledge, sort of the burden of knowledge, Um, even in The Matrix, right? Like, you know, Cypher's the only one who really feels like he, he could get plugged back in. He's the only one who recognizes that, to a certain extent, ignorance is bliss. Um, so it's very compelling to, even though you know he's playing Lee Woo Jin's game, Lee Woo Jin says, you know, once you figure out why I imprisoned you, either I'll kill myself or I'll kill Midu, um, who is uh, Odaisu's companion for most of the movie. Um, and I just, I think, it, I think it's a very powerful sort of, I guess, a mix of the mystery and revenge uh, sort of thriller, right? Yeah. But that they're they're so intricately entwined the mystery is not something that fills out the second act because you need something before they confront each other it's an indelible part of this story and and how how revenge is 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 um achieved 
Yeah, I, I do want to talk about this more uh, about like the intertwining of the narratives. But mm -hmm. just to go back to this idea of the revenge film, I think even more so than other genres, the revenge genre works a lot based on audience preconceptions of the genre. Like going mm -hmm. into a revenge movie, you usually know that's what you're about to see. And that's why uh, the recent example of Pig, for instance, the Nicolas Cage mm -hmm. film, is a defiance of that expectation. And it works with it works on mm -hmm. that level because it's operating at the sen with the sense that the audience is expecting this. We're not going to give that to them. We're going to give them something completely different. Mm -hmm. um, with this movie, I think, and you talk about it being like the most probably accessible South Korean film in North America other than maybe Parasite. I think mm -hmm. right the very first scene where he's holding the guy by the tie and the mm -hmm. guy's about to fall off the roof and he's just holding this guy. And out of context, you are already in that revenge mode with your with your character. You're already saying, yes, this is why I came here. I wanted to yeah. see this guy hang a guy off of a building and watch him suffer. And you get sucked into that story, that narrative right away. Uh, even though that's taken completely out of context, and when you see the context later in the film, it's completely different. It's not a revenge. It's, it's, it's exactly the complete opposite. Yes. He's, he's saving him. Yes. Um, so, but he's saving him because he needs someone to hear his story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, like the way that the music and the way that it's shot to like completely to like feel like this super intense moment that is actually really relatable to a North American audience. So I think the movie is so aware of this idea that it needed to appeal or to like draw you in, suck you in mm -hmm. kind of like the first sentence of a book should Yeah. this opening 10 seconds. If you're not jacked up already, then I don't know you, maybe movies aren't for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that, that opening is really powerful because you have him go from this, you know, he's lean. Uh, he looks wild. His hair is crazy. He's in the full black suit and he's hanging this guy with his dog off of the, uh, off of the edge of the building, and then it cuts back, and it's much uh, a bit chubbier. Odaisu, who's drunk and and improvising lines, um, Choi Min Sik is improvising a bunch of lines, yelling at these cops, and uh, and playing with his daughter's wings and and things like that. It's it's a really powerful sort of jump back, and you want to know how did how do you get from point A to point B when you showed me B first? Yeah, and it was a real like I think that was a very turn of the century trick right was just like do that and then jump back 10 years earlier two weeks earlier six weeks earlier to the extent where i think it's gotten a bit hacky now but at the time it is for it's sure. so electric it's so like like it's gotten to the point where like people make jokes there's a joke in rick and morty right where like this guy insists on morty reading a script that he has and the first page is like something and the second page is four weeks later or four weeks earlier and he's like just start your story where you start your story right so again this is something of its time but i think one of the best examples of how it's used. Yeah, and that the way that movies are constructed like that is all based on aware, like self awareness, and based mm. on like m movies and TV shows that kind of do that by like they show something from mm. the future, then take you back to the past. That's just a way of easing the audience. That's a way of saying, "Don't worry, everything's going to be okay <laughs> until this point." It's like just patting you on the back and saying, "Don't worry." And then when we get to this <laughs> point. Then you can. Then our story's going to start, and then you can start worrying about the character. It's a yeah, and it's a little pessimistic too, right? It is like let's give him that jolt. Let's let's hook him right now because we started with Odaisu in the police station. 
it wouldn't be as exciting. And that's just, I mean, that's, that's the reality of what, what you deal with, with audiences. Um, and similarly, I, I also wanted to talk about how like, you know, this movie starts in media res and that's a common motif for how they begin scenes, right? They never show you like walking into a place. There's not really establishing shots so much as there are, you, you jump into a scene and it's this recurring motif of someone standing in front of someone holding something. So it's Midu holding a dumpling up to Odaisu. It's Odaisu holding up this sign that says I've been bugged. It's Odaisu holding a hammer in front of um, myriad uh, gangsters <laughs> and bad guys over the course of the movie. Uh, and I don't, I don't really, I don't know if you can even get into like your film school essay and be like, here's what this, here's how it creates a theme or something. I just think it's a great visual motif is like you just launch into scene after scene and someone's standing there holding something towards someone else. Yeah, I think this that's like a true demonstration of both a director and I don't know if writing comes into this as much like screenwriting, but this is where you see a director really shine when they don't when they have the confidence to not need to include establishing shots or mm-hmm. shots of tracking why is this character why is this character gone from this place to this place instead of showing that journey, a good filmmaker knows how to cut from one to the next. And I got to say, Old Boy is probably maybe the best film I've ever seen at transitioning from scene to scene, from moment to moment. Yeah. Lends itself to like its unbeatable pace. It is so good. And I, I want to say, what is it? Two hours and change? It's just two hours, I think. It's, it's like, two hours, yeah. which isn't, isn't crazy long, but I'd say it feels way shorter. And like there are only a couple scenes where they really allow it to decompress and expand. Um, primarily, I'd say, like, the flashback scene to the school um, where he's sort of chasing his old memory around. It really takes a pause, and I think they're trying to get into this idea of the memory that he's slowly getting back to as, like, it's, like, brought about by seeing, like, women's knees, yes. right? Is he sitting, he's sitting in the hair salon, and, like, it, I love that, like, it happens once, and he doesn't get the flashback, and then he sees, like, another set of knees, and he slowly, like... His, his, it starts coming back, and it's the idea of, like, yeah, if it was something that happened in, like, grade 9, grade 10, and it's not, like, a critical part of your life, like, how how hard would it be to actually pull back those memories? Something that you think is just, like, something you, an offhand comment you made to your friend. Yeah. That ruins someone else's life. And, I don't know, the simplicity of that is what I think makes it so impactful, too. Mm-hmm. And I I do agree for the most part, but there's, like, a couple scenes that feel super slow. And I think it's intention, yeah. like intentionally mm-hmm. done to kind of mess with the pacing a little bit. Because the scenes that it wants to get through quick, obviously, uh, director Park knows how to get through those scenes quick. They mm-hmm. they are cut much faster. They introduce other elements. Like I mentioned the train example earlier, like in terms of, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, just using formalism to make your edits. Mm-hmm. But there are scenes that are intentionally drawn out to make you feel uncomfortable as a viewer. And so that's the flashback memory scene where it's a really long take of him spying on... Uh, yeah. Sorry. Um, it's a Lee really Lujin long... And, and I, I'm not sure... I don't have his sister's name off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a really long take of him watching uh, Wu Jin and his sister kind of get into some incestuous activities and that scene mm. is 
brutally uncomfortable because you don't get to move. You're kind of following Odaisu's eyeline POV, mm-hmm. and you don't. But you're not moving. You're stuck. You're frozen, and it's so long. It feels like so long. Um, and then obviously the final scene where Odaisu is given the truth about what's actually happened. That scene is tremendously drawn out, and if mm-hmm. I I remember the first time I saw it, and I and then this week when I rewatched this movie, and I've seen this movie a bunch in between, but that last scene feels like half the movie almost. Yeah, it really, yeah, and it's it's, it's it's the last twenty minutes ish, mm-hmm. but it feels like half the movie. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Like, there's definitely a like an ebb and flow. He knows when there's something where is usually in terms of like wanting to make you feel like one of the characters or see eye to eye with these characters sort of going along with this um spoken motif this recurring phrase uh even though i'm no better than a beast don't i deserve to live and when you start with that at the beginning of the movie you're probably thinking like well how how bad could you be or if you knew how bad they were just if they just said like here's what they did then you'd be like i'm i don't see eye to eye with you and then they he drags you through this movie in odaisu's perspective to the end where you're like all right now i know what he's gone through and it's a little bit grayer for me like obviously like they 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 talk about and they depict like serious cultural taboos in this movie um they cover some some very uh difficult things and uh, i think they muddy it very effectively i know you want to talk about immersion which i think goes along with this directly in terms of the immersion helps you get into the mind and the perspective and the experience of odaisu you're stuck with him in his imprisonment you're going through as he's figuring out what he did and what's being done to him uh it's a highly immersive experience very sensory as you've mentioned already yeah and that's what i don't know when we get to our scene which we will shortly, but that's what I really want to focus on uh, in terms of the visual language of the film. Uh, and this isn't just in terms of the more taboo subject matter. It, it comes down to everything. Everything is sensory overload, and it comes down to the way things are shot and uh, the pacing of scenes. Uh, one of my favorite film theorists, just to nerd out a bit, uh, named Sergei Eisenstein, also a tremendous film director um, from like the 1920s uh, said that intellectual cinema has a correlate sensory thought or emotional intelligence and is worthless without it. It's one of my favorite quotes about film theory Mm. because he's basically saying without us being able to relate to the film's moments and the film's characters on a sensory level, then we lose a we lose the capacity to kind of relate to the characters and the film the way we, the way that Eisenstein thought we should be able to. Um, and immersion is not just immersion with the characters, but it's how we immerse ourselves in the world of the film. Um, it allows us to kind of identify better with the perspectives of characters if we feel like we can relate to the world around them. And mm-hmm. to do this, uh, Park Chan Wook said that he wants this film to be felt physically. And we experience this kind of vicious sensorial experience through Odesu, uh, live through his extreme, some extremely uncomfortable moments because of him. And with that in mind, I do want to get into our scene and then we can dive into this mm-hmm. a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Before we do, and this is something we talked about before we started recording, we wanted to make sure that we did our format correctly and we didn't. So I'm just going to oh, throw right. in the tagline here. <laughs> right, we even yeah. reminded ourselves like, 
30 minutes ago to make sure we did this, but we're, we'll get it next time, we promise. <laughs> so 22, we'll have the format right. Uh, the tagline is 15 years of imprisonment, five days of vengeance. I think that's fantastic. Uh, right away, you're like, wait, for what? Like, it just, it, it draws the question out of you, right? I don't think it has to be anything more than that. I, I think it's a little Hollywood in the sense that it's mm-hmm. trying to draw yeah. a specific crowd to this kind of movie. Mm-hmm. And it's underselling itself in many ways, but it's also doing exactly what it wants to do. And it's kind of giving you, it's raising that question, like you said. Yeah, I th- but I think the sneaky undersell is good because I, 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 I love the idea of like attract the people who love them a, a revenge thriller. Because that's the thing, revenge plots are so palpable. We all want justice. We all want people who did wrong to have wrong done to them. It's something very base even though often, you know, eye for an eye and all that, we can we can agree to that, but there's something very, very cathartic about seeing someone who did something wrong, uh, having, you know, uh, being, being brought to justice. Uh, so the idea of getting a crowd in on that idea and then them seeing this incredibly conflicted sort of portrait of revenge and what it's worth and, uh, and who is right and who is wrong at the end of this movie, I think, uh, I think that's a lot of fun. <laughs> Definitely not one of our worst. No, no, certainly not. The rankings coming up soon. We got a bonus episode at some point. All right, all yeah. taglines. <laughs> yeah, maybe the tagline twenty five. Maybe at the yeah, maybe at the one year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that actually right, be a good so way to do it. One, yeah, on the one year anniversary, maybe we'll do the yeah. uh, the tagline episode. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, so let's uh, dive into this scene. Hit us, Tay. Okay, so the scene today takes place at 3523 and goes to 4322. It's approximately, it's almost exactly a seven-minute scene. More or of an a eight, sequence. An eight-minute, yeah, it's an eight-minute sequence. It's about, It's technically about three or four scenes. Um, we're cheating, but we're in charge, so <laughs> we do what we want. <laughs> and we are deliberately cutting it off right before the infamous hallway fight scene uh, mm-hmm. because... Like I mentioned earlier, I think the scene kind of really speaks for itself, and we don't need to talk about it on an audio-based podcast. Mm. Um, what we can talk about, though, is how much happens in these couple in these couple scenes together, making this beautiful sequence of Ode Su finding the location where he was once imprisoned for 15 years uh, by tracking down a dumpling dis- delivery service that leads him right back to his captors, uh, where he begins to initiate his vengeful plan. Scene stars Choi Min Sik as Ode Su and Kang Hai Young as Nidu. Yeah, so I think I I suggested this originally because I didn't really honestly. There's just there's so much about the way this is filmed that I wanted to be able to dig into, and I didn't feel that any one true scene in that definition did the job. And of course, we'd rather just discuss the great things about the movie while trying to fit into our format. So we did sort of lump a couple scenes together. But I love this sequence. I love, um, first off, like if you want to talk thematically, I love the idea that he has to relive one of the more banal but nevertheless difficult parts of his imprisonment in in order to, you know, move the plot along and, and find the next clue. So he has to eat what he was stuck eating for 15 years all over uh, the city, going to every single blue dragon uh, Chinese restaurant buying some uh, fried dumplings and trying them out to see which one is specifically the one that was being delivered to the prison that he was stuck in. 
And of course, he finds out that it wasn't just the Blue Dragon; it was the Violet Blue Dragon restaurant, mm-hmm. which is why he couldn't. Which is why it takes him a bit of time to figure it out. Um, yeah. The going back right away, jumping back to the sensory argument, the you see like how much he does not want to eat some of these dumplings, and you see that one, that first one, he's got position on the chopsticks, just kind of sagging in front of him, mm. and it's it, you. That's just, like that's like. I was gonna say that's like a very Fincher shot from like um, oh yes yeah Panic yeah. Room right or like, Fight Club I don't either. yeah or Fight Club like I don't know do you think like the hand and the chopsticks and the dumpling were like CGI or like a plate I guess probably it's two they shots. film that and then they film yeah they film uh, you, uh, Choi Min Sik I don't want to bash this movie in any way but you can see it really closely if you're watching you can see the shot change when the camera oh, okay. is just because so basically the camera starts on his on Odesu's face. And mm-hmm. pulls back through his chopsticks. Yeah. Uh, which is a visual trick, uh, which you actually can do in camera, by the way. But they didn't do it because they made this much more extreme movement, much more exaggerated than what you can do in camera. Mm-hmm. And it pulls all the way through the chopsticks, revealing what's on the chopsticks, which is this saggy-looking dumpling. Mm-hmm. Just coated in oil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then and then yeah, like the way I mean, it's a great performance. Every time he eats one of these things, he puts it like halfway in his mouth, and you can see he's like already kind of dreading having to get into it. And then he'll sort of like he sort of like snarfs it and, and takes it in, and then doesn't even start chewing. And then Midu is immediately asking like, "Is that the one?" And you get like his his voiceover is great throughout this, right? And not always comedic like this, but this one in particular, he he sort of just thinks to himself, "I haven't even tried it yet." And he starts. You get the chewing sounds, the mastication, and then I love, like, it jumps back in time to him eating one of these in the prison. He's eating it in the same way, but the thing, I, I just like it because they, 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 I like it because they had the care to include it, that the sound design changes between the two places. It's not married in terms of its soundscape, so you jump back in time, and you get that thing like we all get when you're eating alone, and you're breathing through your nose while you're chewing. It's a very sort of uh, impolite thing, and it's not nice to hear. But he's sitting alone in this prison eating and, and breathing, and then it cuts back to the Violet Blue Dragon, and you can hear the soundscape of, like, the air conditioner or, like, you know, just a different room sounds different, right? It has a different uh, sonic quality. Once again, audio comes right into this argument of, like, the immerse, the immersion of this film and the idea that your senses are always at play and the fact that we can connect these two moments present to past through mm-hmm. just soundscape is so cool uh not, it's usually not... this much attention paid to this kind of detail in terms of sound design even though i think sound design artists are tremendously uncre- like underrated and undercredited yeah. for what they do uh it's rare to see it being deployed this uh, meticulously throughout a film and i think once again the idea that this builds up throughout the film is really important too it's not like oh sensory overload for this one restaurant see now i'm like sucked in it's like the it's the way that it's built upon scene upon scene upon scene that this kind of gets into your head and you get into this world you can almost feel that dumpling on the chopsticks the way that this is Mm kind of shot like the proximity and the way that the focus is on the object and in the chopsticks it's i don't know there's something about it yeah no it's it's just very palpable and the thing about the sound design that's not like i watched this the first time and i was like that's genius sound design i noticed this because i was 
I spent, you know, I watched this sequence because we we're going to talk about it multiple times. So these aren't the kind of things that even are supposed to be like first for like top of mind or obvious to audiences. They're just these little bits of texture that operate in your subconscious, right? That, that draw right. you in. Well, you mentioned the scene earlier, and I know we're already jumping out of our scene here, but you mentioned that scene where he is recalling the memory because he sees the sets of knees. Mm-hmm. But the memory, when he actually triggers like the visual to go back to that memory, it's actually the door chime. Yeah, and it, with the, the bike bell. Yeah, so the he's in a nail salon questioning somebody, and then the, the bell chimes when someone walks in, and that cues the memory to a bike bell in the memory. Mm-hmm. Once again, this connection of sensory fr- uh, through audio is mm-hmm. uh, it's it just once again shows the power of the of our senses to connect things like memory, which yeah. is one of the most important parts of this movie. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, and then like, you know, leading out of this first dumpling where you sort of they, they show you what every dumpling is going to be like. It's him recalling the past reliving these bad memories reliving the direct sensory experience except it's always a little bit off it's never the right one because they they start like this actually he's not in the violet blue dragon at the beginning the beginning of the sequence is just the first one that they're trying then we transition into a montage of him trying a bunch of them a montage for the record is maybe one of the least immersive things because it is as dan Harmon puts it it's an apology for reality right you wouldn't want to watch 60 minutes of them doing the exact same dumpling thing in every scene it would be an experimental art film really and more of a challenge to see how you could film that in a specific way so that you get into this montage and that just becomes a process of how can we make the montage interesting we have comedic beats we have specific types of shots i like that you in our notes here you pointed out the overcranked shot of the beads in the doorway it has a completely different frame rate but it's married just in the process of like Let's keep this montage moving. Let's make every single frame interesting. These beads look better when they're way more frames a second, right? And yeah, to me, that was just about conveying some sense of pace too, that the characters are also like, I think the montage works here because the characters are also rushing through this. This isn't mm. him doing this over a set of a series of days. This is Ode Su going to restaurant to restaurant, puking his guts out uh, as it's shown in the one scene, mm-hmm. uh, and then going back and eating more. It's so, I think... This the, is mission. Yeah, and that one shot of the beads getting blown past with mm-hmm. it, the extra high frame rate, probably like 60 frames. Yeah. And that, once again, I think it was just like kinetic energy, keep that pace going, understand that these characters are moving quickly to figure this out, and that it's their, it's his only goal right now. And once yeah, again, and and I I want to clarify. I'm not saying that like oh they shouldn't have done a montage because it oh, ruins no. the sensory experience. I'm saying this is a this is something I'm commending that they are smart enough to know we don't have to stay locked into the minutia of these dumpling tests. We've shown you one and how much suffering he goes through for it. Let's show you that now he's doing that dozens of times. Let's cut to this comedic beat of Odaisu puking and Midu really feeling his pain for him while, like, crossing another one off the list, right? Yeah, so uh, if, if you consider the... We've talked about three beats right there. So there's the first beat of comedy where he kind of has the aside to himself where he's saying, haven't even tried it yet. Um, <laughs> there's Then there's, like, him puking. Her reaction is really comical. And then there's, a thir- there's like, another beat to that scene where she, like, 
then bends down and crosses that off the list, which I thought was also really funny. So mm-hmm. we're about to lead up to a pretty intense moment, and we have three nice little beats of comedy to kind of push us along through this montage. Yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah, the, the next part, um, you know, uh, they just sort of, I don't, they're taking a break. Maybe he needs to rehydrate, you know, something like that. He's had enough dumplings for the day. And Mido, um, it's 2003. One of the things that she, one of her hobbies seems to be just going on chat rooms, right? And I love, like, it's a nice little time capsule. You've got these uh, webcams that are, like, I want to say maybe two frames a second are being are being transferred. So they're very choppy and stuff like that. And she's talking to someone she always talks to who's called Evergreen, um, who uh, eventually reveals that he knows Odaisu is in the room and knows Odaisu is with her by... Uh, Asking if the uh, the Count of Monte Cristo is there, right? And I don't know. <laughs> this is clearly for our generation. the The uh, visual, uh, sorry, the visuals of the chat room are perfect. It, it it's mm-hmm. like a blast of nostalgia back to mm-hmm. MSN Messenger days. And I don't know. I get like such a wave of nostalgia watching yeah. this scene still, and and the whole idea of chat rooms, and then the internet cafe later. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, Which is definitely all definitely more of a thing in 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 Korea, where right, yes. you know, it it was uh, more accessible to be like, well, if I'm going to go play StarCraft for like eight hours, I'll go to an internet cafe. It's easier than having um, a computer at home, that kind of thing. But yeah, no, she's on this chat room. I love another just a lo- another thing because this is still continues to be an issue with Zoom. But I, I'm assuming Lee Woo Jin, he's he's so close up on the camera that you just see like his cheekbones up to his forehead. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean, it helps to kind of obscure his identity because it's not for another couple scenes before he he puts Odaisu in a taxi and reveals himself. Um, but I do like that still today. Every you know, if I call my grandma or something like that, uh, last time we got her on a video call, you're getting more of her eyes and her forehead than anything else. Yeah, I, there's a Bo Burnham <laughs> joke here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But uh, so this is also, yeah, this is the first time they bring up the Count of Monte Cristo, which is maybe your most direct um, uh, or your most similar revenge story. Um, a man is in prison for a long time. He gets out of prison. He doles out righteous justice on his friend who betrayed him. But again, just for the record, in the Count of Monte Cristo, it's before he gets thrown in prison that he knows why it happened. And his friend, uh, played by the, the very great um, Guy, Guy Pierce. In the in the in the most recent modern version, I was gonna say Guy Ritchie, definitely Guy Pierce. Um, explain explains to uh, to the main character why why he's betraying him. Essentially, because he wants everything that he has. Odaisu doesn't know why. This guy's still calling him the Count of Monte Cristo. I th- I just think it's a nice little touch there that he's like, I know you think of yourself as someone who's going to get revenge and it's going to be rightful, like it was in the Count of Monte Cristo. Um, but it's going to be anything but that. Right, okay. Because I didn't even catch that extra meaning there. That makes yeah, a lot no, of sense. I, like, I, I, I think you could definitely, like, I. who knows from our perspective, we don't have enough context for what sort of, um, how, how iconic um, the Count of Monte Cristo would be in Korean culture, but it's at least brought up into this movie. I think it's um, a pretty famous so just kind of story think, yeah. overall. Like, it's almost a folktale. 
yeah to to an extent yeah um i i think it is definitely i think one of the best known classic revenge stories so yes i think it works to sort of see him calling odaisu the count and for odaisu to think of himself on that yeah righteous of a mission right? and it's it's a uni- it's a very universal story so that does I'd make a so. ton of sense yeah. okay um okay so now we're going to talk about some of the heavier stuff so I know we're not we're we're an audio only podcast here, but we are going to get into some nitty gritty stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we need to tell you to turn your uh, to avert your eyes or anything like that. But yeah, uh, the scene you, gets you, pretty if hairy. If you're sketchy, yeah. If you if you get nervous in a dentist chair, just you know, content warning: we don't want you to get woozy if you're listening to this in the car. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, first thing I have written is formalism. The line is yeah. drawn from the hammer. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so just just to get us there, one of my favorite shots in the movie, you have a canted angle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like they find the right dumpling, right? Like he he gets this this sense memory. He's like, this is the one. It has too many green onions. I'll never forget this taste. Scallions. And then he follows. Yeah. Scallions, green onions. I I try not to be pretentious about it, so I just call them green or spring onions. Um, But if you want to call them scallions, by all means. I'm just going with what Ode Sue says. <laughs> I think I think this is an insane tangent. I'm not gonna. I don't want to get into <laughs> why I think they're called scallions. Um, so yeah, he follows a delivery boy on a scooter from the restaurant from the Violet Blue Dragon, and it's just. I mean, the the pacing, the comedy of it is great. You have a canted angle, so that's an um, like a also a Dutch angle, mm-hmm. um, I believe, right? So essentially, it's. Um, it's uh, it's it's thrown off kilter on I don't know what axis that is. I'm, it's, I'm trying it's to define this and I don't like, have it. It's crooked. <laughs> gra- yeah, it's greater or lesser than ninety degrees. Yeah. Um, but just in terms of rotating the the camera's orientation, like to where the up and down would be. Um, I'm sure there's a more mathematical way of explaining what a canted angle is. I'll I'll link to a Wikipedia definition in the in the show notes if you're unsure. But Zodaisu running uphill after this guy on the scooter, um, and then you cut to the the delivery boy has arrived at his destination. He's waiting for the elevator, and you hear Odaisu approaching. He just sort of slams into the wall. He's coughing and spitting up. Uh, it's a great little connection between the restaurant and and uh, him finding the prison. I'm going to keep saying it, but once again, just the, you feel his sweat and his perspiration and his breathing, you and you hear, you feel him smack into that wall and like, he's actually yeah. gassed. The, all You've these things. Like that before. Yeah. yeah. And the, the shamelessness of the movie maybe is something I haven't really said on the, the topic of the sensory elements because the desire or even the willingness to be gross in cinema is kind of something that Hollywood movies and American movies don't really allow their actors to kind of do. You never really see crying or, uh, you know, they usually fake vomit, like, or they'll like do it like behind someone's hair or they'll shoot from behind them. If they're throwing up into a toilet, that kind of, and even if you see something like puking in a film it's rarely as gross as what puking is like in real life in terms of mm-hmm. like you get some on your face you get some on your shirt whatever it's not rarely it's rarely noises. as clean yeah, yeah. and like the, the yeah. noises exactly so when you see odaisu just sweating and he's like spitting a bit like mm-hmm. it's like it, it's gross and but it's real yeah so bodily yeah, fluids no. and are again, super like, important yeah, you, 
I think I think I think it's a great physical um, performance, and it does remind you of even if it's been a decade, even if it's not since you did the beep test in high school, you're like, I remember what, why, when my lungs made those noises too, right? And when I had to slam into a wall like that. Mm-hmm. So it's a great little connection. And then, yeah, like you have maybe one or two quick shots in the elevator where like the div- delivery boy is talking to the guard and the guard tells him where to, where to sign or where well, to you, drop off the stuff. Yeah, you see him hit the two buttons simultaneously. He hits mm-hmm. seven and eight. So you take, it takes you to seven and floor seven floor and a half. 7.5, yeah. Which I, I love, and it, I love that. Like, it, oh man, it's a great patient shot where just his fingers go up, and then like they, yeah. they, they sort of like aim themselves, and then he hits it. It's so good. In that moment, you um, almost can feel him watching Odesu, even though you don't, you only see his fingers, but you can see like the hesitation in him reaching up to like touch those yeah. two buttons. Once again, it's just so beautiful, good. beautiful little moments. And then yeah, as you as you were talking about, you essentially then do another an, yet another scene of Odaisu standing in front of somebody or near somebody holding something to them and uh and you get this like a like a, a reality breaking type of formalism where they're really hitting you over the head with here's what's here's what's at stake here here's what's potentially going to happen yeah so there's a character sitting in a chair with his back towards the elevator and when uh Odaisu comes out he's already in position with the hammer held above his head mm-hmm. and it the camera does a little tableau it it backs out mm-hmm. it pulls out and reveals the whole like the two of them in like a full shot with the hammer held above the soon-to-be victim's head and mm-hmm. then a, it like freezes and a little dotted line tick, is tick, drawn tick, 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 tick. <laughs> and it's just wonderful uh from you, you from do the get tip it. of you, the hammer to the yeah. head you get a very visceral, though, like, you know, um, sensory forward shot, uh, just a little insert where it's a little focus pull on the teeth of the of the hammer's claw. Yes. Right. Like there's just like you're like, yep, those are sharp. I know what those would feel like or I can imagine what those would feel like. And then a really brilliant audio cue that it's almost haunting, even oh, though I'm, I'm cheering so for Odesu. But you get like the guy's foot tapping as he's trying to pull this little knife from his sock. Yeah, or from his ankles it's, somewhere, it's and he's so... trying to like not make a noise because he knows he's about to get hit, and mm. he's trying to pull it out quick, but he can't. And then you just see this little smile appear on Odesu's face, and then it cuts. Yeah. We cut away, mm-hmm. and once not so we understand everything that happened in this moment of violence without seeing any violence. Mm-hmm. Well, and and again, like they allude to this in a later scene with the guy that we're about to talk about, where the guy is about to torture Odesu, and he sort of like psychs him out on the first step of that torture and says like says something to the effect like the imagination is worse yes than, than the reality so like i'll give you that first and that happens in this movie a number of times where they they don't show you the moment of violence they show you plenty of them but some of them they don't or some of them they just they give you that really close-up macro shot on the hammer claw and you're like uh yeah i get i get it right and then they cut around it and you're like i didn't you know what? It was as, as effective as it would be to to see Odaisu like you know uh, embed that hammer in the guy's head. But so I think we've talked about this kind of thing before on the podcast, where it's about grooming the audience to or, or training the audience on how to feel in those moments where you're not actually showing something. So you have to you have to go out of your way and build your film around this construct. So, mm-hmm. like I said, sensory overload, like envelop your 
audience in the world of the film, but then also don't be afraid to show certain things. So we've already seen some pretty gnarly moments in the film, specifically like mm-hmm. Odesu eating a live octopus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there hasn't been true moments of brutal violence yet. And what I have in my notes here is that this is just kind of gearing us up. This is, yeah. you know, doing this elaborate moment of drawing the line from hammer to this guy's head, then not showing us that moment is just gearing us up for what is about to come. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, like just like drawing the string a little bit tighter, moving the goalpost down where yep. it's almost like it sets you up to be like, Oh, we're going to see someone get hammered here. And then it's like, no, you will. You just, you're actually surprised. You have to wait another 90 seconds. Yeah. And it kind of decompresses. And you basically, you get to the boss of this prison. Who's I love, I love how he's just kind of sort of walking through some of the business particulars of how they do things. He's Mm -hmm. like, if they're a famous person, you got to hire someone else to kidnap them. If they're a small fry, we'll kidnap them. If we're imprisoning them for six months or more, we'll do the kidnapping for free. Right. They're like, built-in deals and discounts with what he's doing on the on the seven and a half floor prison and he's got the wall um, of tvs behind yeah, him which is you great. See all the people all the people who are in the same predicament that that odaisu was in before um and then and then yeah how does it actually i'm trying to remember off the top of my head how does it get from there to odaisu well it's it's a brilliant audio cue once again it cuts from the hammer shot of like nothing happening mm-hmm. on camera yeah to that guy in front of the security camera like monitors and mm-hmm. then you just hear the door break down and then he right. looks over at the door like he looks off screen towards us mm-hmm. where the door would be once right, again right. using using audio cues is such a masterful technique knowing like scripting and blocking with mm-hmm. audio cues in mind is something that really takes thorough direction you can't just show up on a day and be like this is how the scene's going to go. You have to plan something like this so you know that it's something is going to have to be added in post to get this effect. And then you have to tell your actors how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they have to act a- a- appropriately and accordingly. There's so many things that have to go into creating a scene that's built on sound. So yeah. a moment like this is actually quite intricate, even though you're not actually doing that much sound work on the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, and then it, you know, you sort of have Odaisu in front of the monitors. And he's talking. The guy is saying, like, at here at the seven and a half prison, whatever, whatever he calls it, like we protect our clients' information with our lives. Mm-hmm. So it sets the stage for, like, okay, you're gonna have to torture it out of him. Um, and then we get, I'd say, like one of the more effective uh, with an A uh, scenes ever, right? And yeah. there's a key shot in it, and I want to talk about how you think they did it and how I think they did it because I did try to do some research, I couldn't find anything, so I think it's a bit of an Occam's razor, the specific shot where he's got the hammer claws on the tooth and the tongue is moving around and then mm-hmm. the tooth starts bleeding. Yeah. Was and the tongue, just... the tongue is like on the hammer. Yeah. Yeah. The tongue is there. That was just the guy's mouth. Right. And they were just feeding blood in down the back of the hammer. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty I don't sure. Think it's you a could get away that. with that. I don't think like it'd be easy to convince an actor to be like, okay, we are going to put like a hammer on your teeth. Nothing's well, gonna happen. Keep in mind, <laughs> right? the, ha- the hammer is not metal, either. Oh, okay. Like they, it wouldn't like a prop, be. It wouldn't like be a silver, metal hammer. Silver, silver spray painted, sort of like rubber yeah. implement or something. Yeah, like they would have props, a props department build a yeah. tool that you could do that with. Because even like 
having a hammer set on your tooth, like a real hammer, the weight of that would be... It affect the enamel. Yeah. yeah, it would It would have an effect. And as an actor, obviously, no, that's a no. <laughs> you don't no, no. don't mess you with my teeth. Can't mess with the teeth. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, no, I just, like, I, I remember the first time I saw that, I'm like, what part of that is a prosthetic or a dummy? Because yeah. I'm like, but the tongue is moving. Like, how do you... And yeah. then at a certain point, I'm like... That's just the guy's mouth. Right? Well, that, that's <laughs> just, the, that's yeah. the big sell. You, you are desperately trying to figure out how they could have faked this, and there's no faking some mm-hmm. a, sh- a shot like this. Um, one of my favorite realizations about dissecting the scene this week was seeing how this kind of is the initiating shot of the torture scene, where you see the effect, and then every shot from this point is zoomed out. We get the extreme close-up on his tongue literally trying to push the hammer out of his mouth and then the hammer the hammer's back end teeth go around one of his human teeth and then blood starts coming yeah. out yeah yeah that that shot on the mouth is an all-timer yep and and you're right like it's just like it's a you know it's a prop hammer and and a little like a little feeder tube of blood probably running down the back where the camera can't see it but it like and, seems uh, to come right from behind the tooth, and it's it wonderful. Really, like it, you buy it a hundred percent. Where you're yep. like, that's that tooth is coming loose. They're pulling it free, and he's pulling it free with a hammer. Mm-hmm. And then the, like the the kinetic motion of him, like he does like a half clockwise <laughs> turn of the hammer, and the guy starts screaming. Man, it, this is so well done. I, I just the way that the shot of him twisting the hammer almost like in a full circle works it's like mm-hmm. minimal resistance but you can kind of see a bit of resistance especially right at first and just, then it kind of just yeah. like and then it's like no no resistance anymore and the way that i don't know like because obviously i don't know anybody nor have i done it myself like ripped someone's tooth out with a hammer so i don't know what yeah, the physics are like yet. but that to me seemed pretty brutally real I buy it. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, there, there, there are countless things that you're going to be exposed to in cinema and the ideas they want to make you feel it, even though it's something you will probably never feel. If you're lucky, you will never have to pull someone's teeth out or have it done to you. But it's just about selling it. And it's all these little things that really do it, like the way that the blood appears, like that little bit of resistance with mm-hmm. the hammer, all these things that... Who knows? A dentist could probably tell you what what aspect of that is realistic and what isn't. There could very well at some point be one of those YouTube videos where a dentist reacts to dental <laughs> torture scenes in movies, right? Marathon Man and Old Boy and stuff like that. But in the meantime, yeah, I think it, it sells it totally for, for what otherwise we don't have any frame of reference for the experience. And once again, just the fact that we go from the effect of the torture in the close-up shot to the method of the torture with the Odaisu hammer shot. Then we mm-hmm. cut to the result of the torture, which is the mm-hmm. teeth being set onto the keyboard. The red rag. And then yeah. and then the red rag. Mm-hmm. So this is a beautiful deployment of four shots in, in a mm-hmm. row that tells a complete story of a torture scene that feels a lot more uh, taboo or a lot more visceral than it actually is is like as a lasting image on the screen it's not very mm-hmm. long we're watching this torture scene and yet it feels like in your memory yeah. of this movie it feels like that scene is like burned into you and it feels like that scene must have been so long yeah but it's really, it really not four scoring. shots and only one of them is a torture shot mm-hmm. and that's kind of a sensory thing right like the totally idea that anything that you can sense more is what's going to last in your mind right mm-hmm. people who have seen this movie when they think back 
they're thinking about the tooth scene they're thinking about the the fight scene things like that so many other scenes are longer right we talked about the ones that kind of decompress and take their time and they're mm-hmm. not what you remember um which isn't isn't any knock against them but yeah i think this sequence like it it shows it's a great sort of little grab bag of so many things this movie does well the way it's shot um the way it puts you in odaisu's shoes the way uh it uses your senses against you um and the way it also in like it includes some comedy somehow which i mean we've talked about in other episodes but it's a great thing about non-western cinema is that we're so locked into like if it's this tone it's got to be this tone all the way through and you're more likely to to find i'd say in 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 non-western cinema where they're like we can put jokes wherever we want this thing will turn on a dime and then we'll go right back to torture we'll go right back to high drama like oedipal greek drama um at the in a heartbeat um and i think that's always commendable i think that's how movies should be Honestly, yes, and I, I give all the credit in the world to the direction and the acting, uh, mm-hmm. specifically in Korean cinema because it's what I'm most familiar with, but this seems to be a, a trend in international film that doesn't exist in North American cinema, yeah. and it's why, once again, another reason why you got to go out and seek international cinema. There's so much mm-hmm. to be learned from watching cinema in other languages from other cultures. Yeah. Definitely. So, yeah, that's our scene for today. And uh, we're just going to do some quick shout outs as per usual. Uh, mine is there is a scene in a computer lab later on in the movie where Odaisu's friend is talking to Odaisu over the phone and saying some things that are very, um, they, they really have an effect on Lee Woo Jin. He's talking about Lee Woo Jin's sister. And it's one of the few, I'd say, what I would call like a little one or like maybe a Spielberg length. It's, it's maybe two minutes or so where you, you realize through a pan that Lee Woo Jin is also in this computer lab and he's, he's eavesdropping on the phone call. He very calmly takes a CD out of the computer that he's sitting at, breaks it into a couple sharp pieces and goes over and so like the performance in this, he's so... And he's so angry. He's so visceral in stabbing this guy multiple times, um, sort of letting him breathe and bleed out. The guy is not gone. Yeah. And Odaisu is listening to it happen. And then he pulls the pulls the headset off of the guy and talks to Odaisu after 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 killing his friend. And I just think like um, Lee Woo Jin, who, uh, as we said above, was played by Yuji Tae. I think throughout this movie a phenomenal very nuanced performance with a very interesting take on how to do like this kind of assured slick rich villain um and i love i think this is one of the high points of his performance and that's why i wanted to call it out yeah actually my my favorite part about the scene is his realization as as to what um uh juan is saying Mm -hmm. uh when he and he has this like crestfallen look for a second he kind of like slumps in his chair and looks like completely like like in complete disarray for a second Mm -hmm. and then he gets up and initiates the action with the disc but uh yeah what a performance uh what a scene i'm really really happy you picked this one yeah yeah he does like six different things in this scene and they are all seamless one to the next you buy how his character would feel all of those but yeah i love this one uh tay you got another one where where somebody dies uh a, a cruel death uh, well, I'm doing the octopi scene. 
Yeah, I feel bad for that octopi. So the okay, so the octopi is the Octopus. is the thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, there's a very famous scene, and if you've seen Old Boy, you know the scene, and mm-hmm. it's where Odaisu, fresh out of being released, uh, is that we find out later, is triggered to go to the nearest place for sushi, um, mm-hmm. and where he demands that he wants to eat something that is alive, and. He is served up a live octopus, which he consumes, and uh, the actor uh, Choi Min Sik actually consumed four octopi eating or during the filming of this scene. Um, mm. It's I don't know. I think it's pretty. It's blown out of proportion in terms of like this is what an actor can do. But uh, Choi Min Sik is a known and proud Buddhist, and this was like Vegetarian? against. Yeah, yeah. This was very much against his way of doing things. So. Uh, tremendous credit to him as an actor but uh mm-hmm. yeah i i do think like stories like that are a little blown out of proportion uh uh park chan wook infamously said i felt worse for the octopi yeah so yeah, definitely i think i think it's a super powerful scene like you know you we could talk talk about it all day about whether or not it's it's ethical or moral things like that but i think it's very it i think it's it serves the character and i think it's a powerful thing to have you know, on celluloid, on 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 film. Yeah, I think it's one of the most impactful scenes I've ever seen in cinema. Uh, the my biggest takeaway is when he's like already chewed the head off, and the legs are still going down. They're yeah. like crawling. They're going up his nostrils, up his nose, trying mm. to like s- snuff him out basically while he's yeah. eating it. It's a it's a yeah, this, crazy this, thing to see. What a force of this nature. This is a this is a version of Korean dish as well. Right. Um, yes, it should be noted. Right. Normally they they would slice it up but because of the way that the octopus operates it still will squirm yeah. after being cut up it's just in this case it was not cut up first it, that's a that's a minor <laughs> distinction uh if it still grosses you out I, I don't blame you at all but yeah those are our shout outs um just a big heads up uh our next movie this is the one that tay and i are picking for the month it's the handmaiden another one by park chan wook but from 2016 yeah, and we're going to have a special guest on, uh, a friend of mine, so uh, stay tuned and we'll, uh, we will kind of maybe lead up to that show with some news. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, check the show notes. We'll let you know where you can watch The Handmaiden right now. Uh, hopefully it's not just physical media. I do believe uh, it's, it's available for rental, if not streaming somewhere. So check the show notes. And uh, just to wrap up, as always, we have some recommendations. Mine this time is The Gift. It's a Joel Edgerton movie from 2015 that I think shares some DNA with the sort of Korean revenge sub-sub genre. Um, It's got Joel Edgerton. It's got um, uh, our favorite straight man ever, um, who I'm blanking on right now. Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman. (laughs) Um, It's a weird movie. I don't think you've seen much like it. It's Rebecca Um, Hall too, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, really well done, and just an odd one. Seemed like a bit of a passion project for Edgerton. I wouldn't be surprised if he was a big old boy fan. Uh, so give give that a watch. One of my favorite things about this movie is that from pre-production, so from writing the script mm-hmm. to post-production in theaters, it was six months. So never never heard of a turnaround time Whoa. that fast ever. Uh, and That's that was impressive. because Edgerton was writer, director, mm-hmm. actor. Star, yeah. So... Yeah. When in that, like, I think he also got two people who he was close with, Bateman and Rebecca Hall. They just mm-hmm. worked on it together. This is it's a great example of a movie that should be made more often because of mm-hmm. practicality and 
it's it's an original script it's an original idea and i i love that that movie but my favorite thing was the turnaround time that's yeah that's very impressive yeah uh, i'm also i'm a big fan of yours um which uh okay it's, it's a it's yeah it's a great movie and i mean it's about <laughs> as like it feels like as long as like you could make the gift while the movie is on does that make sense <laughs> Yeah. I love it, but like it, it isn't. Is it not like four hours long? Oh, uh, it, it's long. I don't know if it's, <laughs> it's that <up> long. There. <laughs> so my pick for the week is a film by Nehong Jin uh, from 2016, and it's called The Wailing. It's also a South Korean film. Uh, I'm trying to find the the run. Oh yes, it's an it's two and a half. Two and a half. Okay, it likes its pregnant pauses. It uh, it really takes its time in a, in a great way. Nothing against it. I I think this is a very powerful irregular horror movie yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna just say it that i think that this movie is flawed but if you're looking for something something new within the horror genre uh especially if you really learned a south korean film this is one you may have overlooked because of its length but it does some wild things uh as a movie it's got a great narrative structure i don't even want to get into the plot but it's uh there's a lot of things that I've never seen done in movies, done in this movie, um, including one of my favorite edited sequences of all time. There's, if you watch this movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's like a, 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 a buildup scene that is one of like the craziest buildups ever. Um, if you're someone who doesn't like unsatisfying endings, maybe steer clear. Uh, if you think that I, I don't see it as an unsatisfying ending, but I could see how other people might. So uh, yeah, go in with a, if you really are passionate about this kind of film, then I highly, highly recommend The Wailing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. And if you if you have any compunctions about unsatisfying endings, go check out our Green Knight episode. We'll talk <laughs> a lot about why they're actually a good thing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, with that, that's our episode on Old Boy. Thank you so much for voting everybody on it. We uh, we loved uh, having another opportunity to dig back in this movie and really think on a second by second level about how well these shots work and why they work and uh, why the sequences are so visceral. As always, you can find us on Instagram at SSE pod. Uh, we do a weekly roundup of what everyone's been watching. You get some great recommendations. We'd love to hear from you there. Uh, our current Blu-ray giveaway is over, but there'll be another one in episode 30. Uh, other than that, uh, please uh, just keep an eye out and uh, recommend us to your friends. Review us on iTunes. If you listen there, we'd really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for voting, everybody. This was a lot of fun. Really sweet pick. Okay, thanks. Bye.